This is the message given by Pastor Rob Jenin during the morning worship service at Faith Presbyterian Church, Long Beach, California, for September 3rd, 2023. The title of the message is Setting the Foundation. It is a great joy to be back with you. Uh, you probably won't remember this, but it was about two years ago that I was here last uh, on Memorial Day weekend, so seems like I like to come for holiday weekends. Here we are on Labor Day. Um, but I didn't get to bring my wife Carla or my boys Noah and Matthew with me this time. They send their, their greetings and their affection to you. Um, James introduced me, and it's, it's fun to look out and see people who have, have been my friends and, and even family for many years, um, brothers and sisters in Christ. And I, I cannot tell you how much this church has meant in my walk and in my life and my growth in faith and in Christ. Um, Mike and Diane Dempsey and, and uh, just Mike's discipleship of me, uh, Dan Overdyne and uh, the, the summer I spent here as an intern at Faith, I am very grateful for this lampstand and for the testimony of the gospel of God's grace that I found here in this church. And I've been gone for 20 years, so a lot of you are new and don't really know me, and that is okay. I am happy to meet you and grateful uh, to um, visit you as, as a visiting uh, brother in Christ. And so this morning, uh, again, I, I know most people don't remember the sermon that was preached last week, so I won't expect you to remember that uh, two years ago I preached a sermon on the great commission from Matthew twenty-eight sixteen to 20. And the idea there was that God has given us a great calling to be his ambassadors, to go and make disciples of all nations and to teach them to obey everything that God has commanded us. And as we talked about that, that's the mission of the church. Our mission is to go out and reach the whole world with the good news about Jesus Christ and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The reminder that God is with us in this work. It's not a work we do alone, and we certainly don't do it in our strength. We do it in God's strength. So that was two years ago. This morning, I want to talk about the great commandment. And so we're going to look at this specific Bible passage, which talks about what does the kingdom look like? If we're going out to proclaim the kingdom, maybe we should look a little closer at what kind of kingdom is it that we're a part of and what kind of a king do we serve? So that's, that's just to kind of situate this morning in, in kind of a larger thought process with you. Do you all typically stand for the reading of God's word or do you sit when we do this part? I'm getting nods, no. Okay. All right. Well, take your, your word uh, and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and we will read verses 4 through 9. Together, this is the word of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me and ask for God's help? God, we have come together as your people, and we have come to your word because you alone have the words of eternal life. Father, we thank you that you love us, that you have sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins, to take away our sins because of your mercy and the gift of life that comes through his sacrifice. God, as your people, as citizens of a great kingdom, we want to understand this kingdom better. We pray that you would help us this morning, Father. Forgive my sins and help me to speak clearly your word Help us to hear with unplugged ears and with humble hearts so that your word might make its full application in our lives. God, give us wisdom to know how to use this word to obey it and to share it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this morning, as we unpack this, the reason why I chose Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 is that Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 is the most important text in the Old Testament. Now, that sounds fairly uh, self-assured to make such a claim, and I wouldn't do it except that Jesus did that. When someone asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment, he quoted these verses. He said... Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He said that was the greatest commandment. And so if Jesus thought this was pretty great and pretty important, I think it's pretty important for us. Even as New Testament Christians, uh, I know this is a church that values and loves the Old Testament. I don't have to make a huge case that we should still read our Old Testaments, even as New Testament Christians. But there is a valuable word here for us. This morning, I'm just going to kind of give you a real basic outline. Here's what we're, uh, what we're aiming for. First, we're going to talk a little bit about what is the greatest commandment and unpack that. Then we're going to talk about how would you go about keeping the great commandment. And then lastly, the question is, why should we keep the great commandment? So as I'm going to walk through that, I'm just going to read through the text and we're going to kind of unpack that together. Uh, And forgive me, I see all these clocks, which are fantastic, but I do not want to commit that grave sin of going over. What time are we done here? When I'm finished, oh, what a gracious congregation. There's four people in here who are like, no, it's like 12.15. Stop at 12.15. Uh, but I will, uh, I'll do my best to uh, say what needs to be said and then sit down. So um, the first thing is we need to unpack this word and understand what is the great commandment. So look with me at the text here. 
And um, actually, before I get into that, you know, it's interesting. I had a couple of illustrations. Uh, I'll say this, that, you know, Jack Nicholas was maybe the most famous golfer that ever lived. And he, uh, every year after he maybe won the PGA Tour or finished all of, you know, winning championships, he's the winningest uh, major tournament golfer in history, he would go back to where he learned to play golf, which is a little country club in Ohio called Scioto Country Club. And there was a man there that introduced him to golf, and he and a whole bunch of other boys taught him to love golf. The man's name was Jack Grout. And every year after the golfing season was over, he'd go back to Scioto uh, and to this country club, and, and he would say, Jack Grout, teach me to play golf. And so Jack would do that from the beginning with the grip and the basics. He would teach him the fundamentals. You probably know Vince Lombardi was famous for gathering all of his NFL football players who'd been playing for many years, and he'd start his speech by holding up football, and he would say, gentlemen, this is a football. And interestingly enough, my wife is a chef, and she loves to cook, and I once bought her a Parisian cookbook, and I was perusing this book, and you know the first chapter of the Parisian cookbook was about how to boil water. I thought I knew that, but there's actually a way to boil water most effectively. And so what this kind of insight gave me was that experts understand that the fundamentals are the most critical part of any effort, of any endeavor. And so I think it's important for us to dwell on the fundamentals of Christianity, which is why we're looking this morning at the great commandment. So the question is, what is the great commandment? Well, here's what we hear in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The first thing to note here is this text is famously called the Shema. And it's called the Shema because that's what the first word in Hebrew is. Hear, it means to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And something we'll unpack in a minute is that this term to hear doesn't just carry the idea of hear it. It actually carries the weight of we are to hear it and obey it. You know, you might think of it as a parent when you're trying to get something through to an inattentive child, and you say, are, are you hearing me yet? You know, it's like, I need you to clean up your room, you know, and you're hoping that it's getting through. Well, that's this idea of hear, O Israel. This idea is that it carries not just the weight of listen to this, but actually do this. This should be true in you. So he says, the first thing is, hear, O Israel. And then it makes a statement about God. In your Bible, you probably notice that the word Lord is in these all lowercase caps. Whenever you find that, Lord, like that, that is the word Yahweh. That is God's covenant name. I am that I am. Remember when Moses said, well, who should I tell the people of Israel that I am sent in your name? He said, who should I tell him is sending me? Tell him, 
God said, tell them I am is sending you. Yahweh is God's covenant name. So when you see this, hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, the Lord is one. The first piece of that is it would be easy to think, okay, well, this is maybe a statement that we are monotheists rather than polytheists. And that's, that's certainly going to be true. But this isn't really a statement about the single unity of God. This has more to do with the divine excellence of God. Is the idea is that God stands alone. There might be many out there who claim to be gods. There might be many who claim and seek your allegiance. But Yahweh alone is the true God who deserves to be worshipped and praised and glorified. So when it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, that's what it's saying. There's only one God. He is alone the God who rules above the heavens. Amid all the claims of competing false gods, he stands alone. Now the second piece here is this statement in verse 5. Look at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And when you see that phrase there, love, you know, today we're really struggling to understand the definition of what love is. We're going to try to unpack love. You know, I think love generally, I would say it's an unconditional desire for the uh, welfare of another being. That's, that's my basic working definition of love. But we're going to see here that the definition of love is a little bit bigger and broader than that. First, he says, how, what kind of love is this? It's kind of an all-encompassing love. First, you're to love God with all your heart. You're to love him with all your heart. That means your creative faculty, your will, all of that is where your heart was. I know today we think of the heart as more of an emotional organ, but in the Old Testament, the heart is really like where your will comes from, your desire to do things. It's really kind of a thinking organ. You know, so, you know, what we would consider our brain, that, that function is really accomplished by the heart in the Old Testament. So you're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart. It means, you know, you're going to think about this and prioritize him. And, and with all of your strength and creativity, you are going to place him first. The second part is he says you're to love the Lord your God with all your soul. And the soul in the Old Testament is more of where you would find the emotional center of your being, where the feelings spring from. And so he's saying you're to love God with your creativity and your will, and you're also to love him with your feelings. You should be devoted to God uh, wholeheartedly and and single-mindedly. And then this last part, it says, and with all your might. And I'm going to just say, I'm, I'm standing on the shoulders of an Old Testament professor who's a good friend of mine back in Birmingham, uh, Mark Ginolette. He is a Samford Beeson uh, University professor, good seminary there in Birmingham. And he says, this really isn't a third command. Like He says that this, this word here, when it says, with all your might, he says really in the, in the Hebrew text, this functions a lot more like an adverb. 
It means this is the way in which we are to love God with all our heart and all our soul. And so it's kind of like, just to give his full interpretation of this text, this is kind of how he puts it. He says that we are to love God with an exclusive loyalty in our heart and in our will and also in our emotions, in our spirit, and really a lot. That's, that's what he's saying. This is pointing to the fact of this should be an intense commitment. It should be a single-minded commitment. God deserves, and this is kind of the key concept, because God is the king, right? Like I've said, the Lord is one. The term for us really is king, because we talk about the kingdom of God. What we're saying is, is that Yahweh alone is the king, And he deserves our exclusive loyalty. He alone deserves that place in our life and in our heart. And so this identity of who God is, that he is the worthy God and king who stands alone and above all, the great commandment is is that we are called to recognize that we are his subjects, that there is No one else in all the universe who has the right to command us to love them with this kind of exclusive loyalty and devotion. The great commandment is to make this decision in our minds and hearts that this is who God is for us. What he says to me, I will do. What his commands and will are, those things will have an exclusive place above all other things, before all other things in my life. And so that is the great commandment. Now, before we think about like how do, how do we apply this commandment, And we're going to talk about verse 7, where it says to teach your children diligently. Before we even get there, there's another word in verse 6. He says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So these words that God has commanded us are to be on our heart. What that means is before you ever get to doing God's work out there in the keeping of the great commandment, it should happen here those inward commitments are being reordered and transformed and and you are surrendering that to God. And so before we ever worry about others, this is first and foremost a call for us to make that decision that God alone is the God that I will serve. You know, Joshua 24:15, Joshua makes this statement before all the congregation of Israel. He says, "Choose you this day whom you will serve." But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, this is kind of that, but you're doing this just in your own heart and making that declaration to yourself that this should be true inside your heart before you ever start thinking, yeah, I'm going to get up and preach to other people that this is what they should be doing. It starts with our own personal commitment that this is true in the deepest parts of ourselves. So how do we apply this? It's an internal reality first, and then externally we begin to live out the great commandment. And that's spelled out starting there in verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. 
and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Now, how does, how does this shape us? This idea of who God is is supposed to shape us. What has just preceded this in Deuteronomy 6 is the second giving of the Ten Commandments, right? Deuteronomy means deutero, second, nomos, law, the second giving of God's law. And so in chapter 5, they'd just gotten the Ten Commandments repeated, and they were getting all of this spelled out and laid out and explained to them. And those commands are in view along with this primary covenant loyalty, devotion to God. And he's saying, you're to teach them diligently with your children. So this is good news for those of you who are committed to the catechism. I love, this morning we got up and we sang the first, which is by far the greatest question in all of the Heidelberg Catechism, and it was intended to be so. It's like if you get number one, you get the reason why you're going to study on for the remaining hundred plus questions. Because number one is so big. What is my only hope in life and in death? That I am not my own, but that I belong body and soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and as we unpacked it in the song, that is amazing doctrine. And we should carefully, diligently teach that to our kids through catechism. So this is a great verse for those of you that are faithful in teaching the catechism and learning the catechism. We should take time to carefully memorize and store God's word in our hearts. So that's the first part of it. Diligently study. But diligent study isn't just reserved for like a classroom environment or even like the after dinner environment, which is a great classroom, or the after breakfast environment, wherever you guys as a family sit down together with God's word. But it doesn't stop there, right? What were these next words? It said, not only do you teach them diligently, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way or when you go for a drive and when you lie down, okay, bedtime, when it's time to rest and when you get up. And, and those two, lie down and rise, when you sit down and when you walk along the way, those are what we would call in, in grammar. I know several of you are teachers here because you stood up this morning. In grammar, we'd call these, uh, it's a literary convention called a merism. You know, when we sing, you know, that uh, America from sea to shining sea, we mean from the Atlantic to the Pacific and everywhere in between. And so this idea of when you lie down and when you get up, or when you sit down and when you walk along the way, these merisms are to imply that, and everything in between. God should have a place in every part of your life. But this is also really good for us when we think about how we teach our kids. We're not supposed to just teach them in the classroom. We're not just supposed to talk about God when we're doing God things like we're doing right now. Because if God's the kind of God we've just unpacked, that he is a great king above all gods who deserves our exclusive loyalty, then everything has to do with God. When you are walking along the way, 
The squirrels you see, the traffic you're driving in, the, the weather outside of you, it all has to do with God, and all of it presents an opportunity to learn something about God and the world he has made. I was thinking, just in preparation for this, I was looking on, on uh, Thursday night at clouds, and I was thinking, I'm looking at these beautiful clouds, and when I first looked, and you probably had this realization sometime, when I first looked, it just looked like a snapshot, like a beautiful snapshot with the clouds. Um, I was visiting some friends who, who live by the ocean, so the water's down there, and I was like, that is a beautiful picture. But as I stopped and looked at it, I'm like, it's not really a picture, because it's moving. And I had to look really carefully But when you look carefully, you start realizing as you kind of look at the horizon and you look at the clouds, some of those clouds are moving. Some are moving a little faster than others. And and what I'm looking at seems like it's not changing, but it's changing constantly. And so the picture for me was this. That's a lot like God's providence. There are many times when I look in my life and feel like God is not active. God is not doing anything right now, and I'm frustrated because I want him to. It's a situation that's difficult that I want to improve, or someone that I'm hoping is, is going to receive Jesus, and, and they're just not. Or it's a suffering that I'm enduring, and it seems to be taking longer to get through it than I would like it to be. And that picture of the clouds helped me to see something about God. It helped me to see, yeah, you know what? God is at work. He is moving. He is changing things all the time. And sometimes I just don't slow down long enough to actually observe that, to see that. And so as I was just out there looking at the sky, I was learning something about God. And if my 12-year-old and my 9-year-old had been there with me, That might have been a good, short, teachable moment to draw them into something about the character of God. Since God has made everything, pictures of him and his character and his purposes are everywhere. We're just blind to see them most days. And so that's why I think he gives this instruction that we are not to just teach our children or even learn or remind ourselves just in a classroom environment, but everywhere. We're to see God's work in the world. And so when you sit down and when you walk along the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, there is something new for you to learn about God. God, and, and I love like the idea of sit down and, and when you walk along the way, I think that's saying God is God at every place. He is God right here in the sanctuary of Faith Presbyterian Church. And he is God on the 405 when it is just stop and go grinding traffic. And he is God when we are sick and we are scared and we are worried about the future. He is God at every place, whether it's our hospital room or it's the freeway or it's, it's in a beautiful setting with our family. He is God over all of it. And then the, the whole thing about lie down and rise up, I think that that's a picture that he's God at all times. He's not just God at some times. He's God at all times. So he's not only God of all places. He's the God of all time. 
and that he has something to do with every time and every moment in our lives. James told you, I'm the executive director of a ministry in Birmingham called Young Business Leaders. One of the main things that I spend my time doing is trying to break down this compartmentalized wall that we are constantly erecting. And businessmen and men in general, we tend to compartmentalize our lives. This is my home life. This is my work life. This is my recreational life. This is my uh, workout life. You know, we kind of have all these little chopped up pieces. And the key thing is to remember that God has written his name and his sovereignty over every one of those pieces. He is God in every time and place. And so I'm always trying to tell businessmen, he has something to do with your work. He has something to do with the job you do, the way you do it, the way you speak when you're at work, the purposes for which you work, the relationships you have with your coworkers. Every element of your work has something to do with God. And so this command here helps us to see that the relationship we're to have with God as exclusive loyalty to our king It's something that takes place everywhere and at every time. And that's what it means for him to be the king. All right, and then let's look at these last verses here in verses 8 and 9. It says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Okay, so... I hope I'm not reading too much into this, but I see some things here. Clearly, the people of Israel, they did this. They actually tied, like, tassels on their garments with Scripture on it. These these little Scripture boxes, they they did tie, like, little Scripture boxes, even on their foreheads. And and they, they wrote it, like, on the doors of their houses and on their gates. And actually, I love doing that. Um... But what does that mean? I mean, let's just look at it. If you, if you put Scripture on your hand, how does that help you? Well, your hands are oftentimes the instruments you employ when you're doing something, right? So before you do anything, you should be reminded of God. And you should ask yourself, does God want me doing this? And in what way should I do it? Because I'm representing God, who is my great king. And so that scripture verse on your wrist, it's it's a reminder that my hands are instruments in his service. And that whatever I do, as 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whatever, I'm sorry, it's not 10.31. That's whatever you eat or whatever you drink or whatever you do, do it with all your might. And elsewhere, uh, I'm trying to remember, it says, and somebody will know it, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, right? But we're to do it for the glory of God. We're to do it for the glory of God. So our hands, that's why we put scripture verse on our wrist. It's it's not because that somehow saves us. It's because that should hopefully remind us that my hands and my activities are to serve my king. Secondly, put it on your forehead. Okay, that's interesting. I don't know if you guys ever played, um, I think they called it Indian poker. You stick one card on your forehead. You don't see your own card. Everybody else sees your cards. And then you have to try to, like, bet. We played this at, like, you know, youth group retreats, you know, and you're betting Cheetos and stuff like that. And, and uh, you'd have to try to bet, like, do you think you have a better card than everybody else? And, and I remember um, one time this happened, and everybody else had an ace, and I had a two. And uh, um, 
But the idea there, why would you put something on your forehead? You can't see it. You can't see it. So what's the point of putting scripture verses on your forehead? So that when everybody else meets you, they're actually thinking about God. The first thing that they meet when they meet you is the word of God. And your devotion to God. I was in India with my son last year, and all the married Indian women have a little red dot right here. Why? Because you see a a beautiful Indian woman, she's got a red dot. Oh, well, clearly she's married. I I need to know that right away. That's a healthy thing to know, right? And so um, that, that same picture, when people meet us, one of the first things that they should know about us is our commitment to Yahweh that he is our God and we serve him and we love him. And so the point of those scripture verses, just like the ones on our hand are to remind us, those are to remind others that we belong to the king. Okay, and let's look at the, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, a couple of things here. Again, when I'm teaching businessmen, one of the key principles I try to teach all businessmen is that you do not own anything. You are a steward, and however much God has given you, it has been entrusted to you for a little time, and you're going to have to give it back to him, and you're going to have to give an account for how you handled it while you had it. And so if you write on the doorposts of your gates scripture, and and if you write it on the door of your house, then as you come and go from your own house, you're reminded that you're a servant of the king and the things that you have belong to him. And everybody who visits you is reminded in the same way, wow, he's got a beautiful house. Well, you know what? This isn't his house. This is God's house, and it belongs to God. And so as we come into our houses, as others visit us, they're reminded of this foundational pre-commitment that this house does not own me, and I do not own this house. I belong to Yahweh. It's his house, and I'm using it for a time under his service. And so all of these pictures, I think, are so important for us to see what it looks like to be a servant of the king. He lays that out for his people. Now, the other thing is, you know, probably several of you, when I opened this and said that Jesus said that this was the greatest commandment, you probably also mentally filled in. He didn't stop there, did he? When they said, what's the greatest commandment of the law? How do you read it? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then what did he say? And the second is like it. He said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus 19.19. There's a beautiful section in Leviticus 19.13 through 19, which spells out how love for our neighbor is a demonstration of our love for God, that we are to love our neighbors. And so this statement that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, why did Jesus consider that always tied to the first commandment? Because one of the ways that you and I consistently demonstrate our exclusive loyalty to God is in the way that we interact with other people. The longer I live, the more I'm convinced that my life is just one ongoing series of relationships with God and people. And what I think about God affects how I engage with other people. And so Jesus tied those two together because you cannot love God and hate your brother. 
You cannot love God and not help your brother when he is in need, right? James 2.14, which of you, uh, if he has a brother who is in need uh, and he comes to you, you say, go, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? Can such a faith save a man? His point was, is that if you have this exclusive loyalty to God, it will be visible in the relationships we have with others and the way that we connect with others and and what we do. So this is the, the how. How do we keep the great commandment? We keep the great commandment in those ways, first internally and then externally through studied instruction, of how great our King and God is and our devotion and dedication to Him in our hearts. And then just situationally, in every time, in every place, we're looking and connecting and making God connections with our world. And then as we interact with other people, we are demonstrating the kingship of Yahweh and our devotion to Him in the way that we treat others, which is why we must love our neighbor in a hundred practical ways, and we're going to have practical opportunities here as the service dismisses. Uh, Even the deacons offering, what is that? That's a promise that I'm going to help those who are in need. I, I want to help those out of what God has given me. And so there are many practical ways we're going to have a chance to love God today. But now I just want to say this. I loved Edmund Clowney, who I never had as a teacher, but my teachers always quoted him. They would always say, Uh, I guess he was, you know, pastor of preaching at Westminster. He would say, Son, did Jesus have to die for you to preach that sermon? It's a good question, right? Like, because up till now, I mean, everything I've said is very good and very important. But how does this connect with Jesus himself? Well, I want to say this, that the why we should keep the great commandment is rooted in grace. And I love this. If you still got your Bibles open to Deuteronomy 6, just turn to verse 20. And this is when you think about teaching your children diligently. You don't just teach them the law, you teach them the why, right? It says, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then... So they're going to wonder why. Why do we have to do all this, Dad? Why do we have to do this, Mom? Why are we going to church today? I just want to sleep in. I don't know if anyone fought that battle. I hope nobody did, but, you know, I fight that battle at home sometimes. Um, They ask you that question. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord for our good always that we, he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. So you see the grace this is rooted in. When your kids wonder, why do we do this, Mom, Dad? We tell the story of our rescue from Egypt. Now that's our story too, right? The story of our rescue from Egypt. We were not 
You and I were not slaves in Egypt. You've all got a testimony, and you should be thinking through your testimony. But all of us at one time were in bondage to sin. We were slaves to sin, and we were reaping the death that flows from it. And God, in His kindness and mercy, sent His Son Jesus to rescue us, to redeem us from sin, so that we might not serve empty masters like Pharaoh or our own flesh or our own sin or other false gods. He rescued us for our good. And so this is good news. The reason we keep this law We keep this word why Yahweh alone is king over our lives and not our iPhones and not our homes and not our jobs. Not even our children are going to be our identity. Our foundational identity is that we are made in the image of God, redeemed by God, and called to be kings and priests in His kingdom and to fulfill the great commission which we talked about last time, for his glory. And that's actually for our good. So you tell your sons and daughters, this is a good thing. Before we even knew anything about God, he rescued us. He sent his servant Moses and pulled us out of Egypt and showed us love and signs and wonders and delivered us and saved us and gave us a good land that we didn't deserve. And we moved into that land and he's preserving us alive by the keeping of his word. And so we understand what the great commandment is. We understand a little bit of how we are to keep it. And we understand that ultimately the reason that we keep it and even the power which keeps us is rooted in grace that God himself has delivered us. Remember, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus did this perfectly. Jesus was the one who fully loved God, his Father, exclusively and loyally and devotedly all the days of his life at every time when he laid down and when he rose up and when he walked along the way and God's word was imprinted on his heart. And because he fully absorbed that work into his life, he was a righteous offering for your sin and for my sin so that we could be forgiven and that we could know life in the kingdom of God. And that's our good news. That's our story. That's the story we tell our children, and that's the story we tell everyone else. If you're in school, you know, I love that we're praying for schools, this boss initiative. I love that we're praying for schools because that is a battle zone right now. But we have good news that God is a much better king than the the latest God or fad of the day that is being pushed or promoted in schools. He is king over our workplaces. He's king over our homes. He's king over our pocketbooks and over every part of our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for your love for us, that you are a great king. And before we ever did anything, you rescued us from sin through the power of your own redeeming love and through the blood of your son, Jesus. God, we pray that you would help us, therefore, to believe the great commandment, that you are a great king, that we are to serve exclusively. 
And I pray that you'd help us to apply that to our lives. And I pray that you would help it to flow from us, that as we live these kinds of lives, that it will have good, encouraging witness to everyone we meet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.